If you have your Bible, if you would turn to Psalm 51. If you don't have a Bible in the back of your sermon outline, you will see the text of Scripture. And I invite you to follow along. We read most of it in the earlier part of the service. So right now, I just draw your attention to verses 1, 2, 7, and 10. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So far, the reading of God's Word. Oh, what tangled webs we weave when we practice to deceive Sir Walter Scott, who apparently knew something about lying and conspiracy and the problems that happen when you start telling lies and start trying to have your own way and how it all sort of it gets exposed and falls in on you. Tangled webs. You know, King David wrote Psalm 51. And I wonder if you remember the occasion. Do you remember why he wrote Psalm 51? Well, some of you know, David had this affair uh, that's recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 11 with a woman named Bathsheba. And he got tangled up in lies and deception and in lust and adultery and in conspiracy and murder. How did this happen? David, so blessed of the Lord. Well, you remember he was married to a woman. That, her name was Michael. And Michael was not a very respectful wife. She had scorn toward David when he worshipped the Lord with enthusiasm and she mocked him. And we are not told much about her, but it's not hard to guess that their marriage grew cool. And David had a lot of good friends. Three of them were called his mighty men, and one of those mighty men was Uriah the Hittite, one of his fellow warriors who was side by side and shoulder by shoulder with him. And Uriah was married to a very beautiful woman named Bathsheba. And in one military conflict, David stays home while Uriah and the others are off fighting the battles, and David sees Bathsheba. And he instantly lusts after her and sinfully gives himself in pursuit to her, and they have an affair. And then she is pregnant. What's he going to do? So he sends for Uriah, right? You read in 2 Samuel 11, he sends for Uriah. Uriah, come home. The battle's been tough. Go spend some time with your beautiful wife. But Uriah is a man of noble character, and while his colleagues are out fighting the battle, he will not go comfort himself. And back he goes to the lines. And David is now weaving a more tangled web, 
and he now knows that he has to marry Bathsheba and wants to, and so he sends a conspiratorial message to Joab. Go ahead and plant Uriah at the front of the battle, and then if you withdraw, don't worry about what happens. And so surely the report comes back. Uriah is exposed, and Uriah is killed. And so David takes Bathsheba to be his wife. But we read in the Bible, the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Now David clearly knew he had sinned. That's why all the conspiracy initially. He knew he had done wrong, but the Bible doesn't really tell us what he was like between the moment that he sinned, the time that he sinned, and the confrontation that you may know is coming in 2 Samuel 12, uh, when your sin, which always finds you out, finds him out. We don't know really what David's heart was like, but it's not hard for me anyway, after 27 years of being a pastor, to tell you what he was like. He got on with life even while he was committed to his sin. And he probably was not real enthusiastic about worshiping God in the temple of holiness because it's hard to worship God in holiness while you are still vigorously committed to your sin. And so God sends Nathan the prophet. And do you remember that encounter? Have you ever had an encounter where someone comes to you and says, we need to talk? We need to talk about your sin. You probably don't like that. But if you're the king, you especially don't like that. Who likes to be confronted? Nobody does, but when you're the king, it's really dangerous. Nathan, go and confront David about his sin. So Nathan comes. And what he does is he holds up a mirror to the king's face by telling a parable. Do you remember that parable? He says, David, I want to tell you about a man, a man who was very rich and had flocks and herds, but he had a guest come to his house for dinner, and he needs to feed the guest. And though he has flocks and herds, his next-door neighbor, a very poor man, has one little lamb. And the rich man comes and he takes that little lamb from his neighbor's family. The little lamb, we are told, is, was like, a, like one, of the, one of the children, was one of the family. And the rich man comes and takes that lamb and slaughters it and cooks it and feeds it to his guest. And David hears this story and he rises up. There's an indignation inside of him. And he says, as surely as the Lord lives, that man deserves to die. And he must repay fourfold for what he has done. How dare he? And then Nathan delivers the crushing words. You are the man. And the thunderbolt goes off and David knows. David knows it's over. And his sin has found him out. And he is broken, and he is contrite. And Psalm 51 has been given to the church for centuries to guide us on what to do when we discover and are aware of the sin in our lives. 
This is a gift to you today. Psalm 51, a gift to the church, one of the, one of the great liturgical poems for us to use, to sing, to pray, as we deal with the corruption that is in every heart, when we deal with repentance. Some of us, the word repentance comes up, and some of us say, some of us say, thanks, but no thanks, not interested, I'm a good person. Others of us say, repentance, been there, did it a whole bunch of years ago when I was converted and became a Christian. Isn't that when you repent of your sins? I did it then. What interest is that to me now? But others of us know that it's not even just the technicolor sins, but that there is to be in the Christian life what Martin Luther calls a race of repentance, that there is in the healthy Christian a willingness to examine their life, to invite Nathan, the Holy Spirit, to come and to speak to our hearts and to show us those areas of our life where God wants to work and create in us a new heart and to renew a right spirit within us. If you're afraid of repentance, that's not what you should be afraid of. What you should really be afraid of is the calloused heart, the hardened heart that says, I have no interest at all. And that that's what you should be afraid of because that could be your own spiritual ruin. Do not be afraid. Instead, you see, what we learn is that God thinks about our repentance. What does, this is not working. There we go. What does God think of your repentance? The answer is, he delights in your repentance. Verses 17, 16 and 17 make that clear. You say, oh, but I brought burnt offerings. I brought a sacrifice. God's not interested, according to uh, Psalm 51, in just the fact that you brought a sacrifice. He doesn't delight in that. No, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. He will delight in your repentance. You see, as one friend of mine used to put it, you've got to learn that sin is insanity. Sin is insanity. It is this crazy sense that living my own way is acceptable to God and is actually good for me and the people around me. When it's a sin is insanity. When you sin, you become eccentric. That eccentric, from the center. You have moved away from the center. God is the center. And when you sin, you are turning, you are distancing yourself from God. You become eccentric. Out of the, and so, and so, so what is repentance? Point number two. Repentance is when you come to sanity about your need. See that in verses one and two. When you come to sanity about your sin, and when you come to sanity about God's power to deliver you from your sin. This is what repentance is. For some of us, this is a new concept. For others of us, this is just a tool that we need to learn over and over again. But repentance is a, is a return to sanity as the basis for actual joy in our life. This is going to be something that's good for you, not bad for you. So I hope you pay close attention here. Sanity about your need. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says your greatest need 
is to know your greatest need. Can you repeat that after me? I'll say the sentence. My greatest need is to know my greatest need. You see, here's what was going on with David. David was cruising on in life, and life was okay. He had Bathsheba. He's living in sin with her. And he is, uh, he's even got a great moral compass. Why, he's quite righteous. He's insane. Do you remember how indignant he was over that man that took that lamb from his neighbor? Why, how dare he? And, and this is something, this is one of the great tricks, one of the great tricks that Satan uses, one of the great tricks of our sinful flesh. It, it tells us to compare ourselves to other people where we're doing okay. And then in, in, in self-righteousness to condemn the sins of others when we cannot even see what's going on in us. So there is this need to be able to say, verses 1 and 2, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. And the question is, are you in denial about sins in your life? Luther says the Christian life is a race of repentance. It is a self-discovery that leads you again and again, day after day and Sunday after Sunday in our gatherings, back to the place of sanity where we acknowledge and express our need of the Savior. And it leads to sanity about our sin. That second point there, you come to sanity. In verses 3 through 6, it's quite beautiful. He says, For now I know my transgressions. And my sin is before me. He, he wasn't seeing it. But now he says, I do see it. And, and there is that awful moment, and it is an awful moment, when our sin is exposed to us. And then the excuse-making ends. Look at what he says. He says, surely, in verse 6, surely you desire truth in the inner parts. <laughs> you want me to be real, you see. And God... You are proved right. God, you are right. And all my excuses, <laughs> I'm done with my excuse making. There's no more defense, no escaping. You see, I know people who are just, they, they scream and they yell at other people with rage and anger. And they spew all kinds of uh, lava out on people around them. And then they say, but you know, I, I just have a Mediterranean personality. I know people given to fornication and adultery. And what they say is, I, I have sexual needs that are unmet. I know people who brag. They boast. You, you can't be around them ten minutes before they start telling you about their accomplishments, how, how great they are, and how everyone praises them, and, and they, they're just braggarts. They're, they're, their pride is an engine inside of their soul. And they say, look, I mean, I'm just trying to build my self-esteem. I'm not just talking about 
see David's murder and David's adultery and David's conspiracy. Yeah, those are the technicolor sins. The reason I gave you this article by Tim Keller in your bulletin, don't read it now, it's for you to take home, is because he takes from John Wesley this beautiful pattern of how you examine your own heart each night the end of the day. And you don't ask, you know, did I murder somebody? But did I look down on someone today with a kind of disdain that was mean? How to look at your own heart and say, did I, did I fail to do something today that I know God wanted me to do because I was a coward? And then to engage in the operation, not just of self-examination, but of real repentance and renewal in your life. You see, you need to come to sanity about your sin, just like David did. You get, get that? That's what Nathan brought to him, sanity, and that's what we need. But praise God, verses 7 through 9 are this marvelous cry where he says, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. And he comes back to sanity about God's power to forgive and God's power to deliver. And this is amazing. His adultery and his murder and his selfishness have now made him feel so stained. His excuses are gone. All he can do is turn to God. Have you learned how to turn to God when your sin is before you and your excuses are over with? I love these verses. You see, he remembers that when God made his covenant uh, with Israel at Sinai, God said, I am the God who forgives wickedness and rebellion and sin. And he now says, how do you do that? Where do you do that? And he says, purge me with hyssop. And I will be, what in the world is hyssop? When's the last time you had some hyssop? You go next door to Dodds and Eater and you order some hyssop. Hyssop is a Middle Eastern fern. And the priests used to take in the cleansing ceremonies about forgiveness, they would take and they would dip it in water and sprinkle it. They would take it, dip it in blood and they would sprinkle it on the people. And that was a moment when Jesus Christ was displayed. For the book of Hebrews tells us that the blood of Christ is the blood of sprinkling that falls over the people and atones for their sins and covers their sins. And David is looking outside himself to God to provide a blood atonement somewhere, sometime, that will purify him from all unrighteousness. And oh, friends, this this is the gospel of Jesus Christ which answers the preposterous prayer. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow? David? I don't know if you've ever seen, but all over the world there is this little evangelistic booklet that is used. You may have heard of it. It's called the Wordless Book. It's very effective all over the world. And it is basically a take on Psalm 51, verse 7, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And there are really just three pages. There's a yellow cover, a green back cover, but there's three pages in the middle of the book and there's not a word on them. They are conversation starters. 
And the first page is about the soot and the ash and the stain, the darkness of my sin within my own soul. And maybe, as you evangelize people, you can turn the conversation and say, if God, sh- if God put all of your thoughts and all of your words and all of your actions on a, and recorded them on a DVD so that they could be shown on CNN for the whole world to see, would you be happy about that? And there's not one of us who would want that. Instead, what, what the Bible says is that there is like someone has taken charcoal or ashes from a fire and smeared it and stained you. And there comes a time in every person's life if they are on a true spiritual journey when they become aware, as David did, that I have betrayed others. I have lied. I have lusted. I have had to have my way. What about you? Have there been times in your life where you said, I have had to have my way? Proverbs says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end leads to death. God had been so good to David, and God has been so good to you. But we are drawn to sin. And I've always found that When my trust in myself goes up, my trust in Christ goes down. But the more I don't don't trust in my own righteousness, the more my trust in Christ goes up, you see. And so this first page of, of the wordless book is very important, but it leads us then to the second page. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Wash me in what? Wash me with hyssop? I don't have hyssop. What will cleanse me? And we sing a hymn in this church. It's an old hymn. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. You think whoever wrote that hymn knew Psalm 51, verse 7? Yeah, they, they did. And so you have this page And you tell someone about the blood of Christ shed for them. Now, we are told in 1 John chapter 2, if anyone does sin, we studied this this year, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the propitiation for all our sins, the big fancy word, which means he is the atoning sacrifice who turns away the wrath of God and brings the smile of God to all who are united to Christ and washed in his blood. What qualified Jesus? What qualified Jesus to shed his blood? The answer is he was the God-man. He was perfectly God, so he can satisfy God. And he was holy man, man answering for man's sin. And he was the adequate and full propitiation payment for our sins. He was betrayed like Uriah was. He was abandoned like Uriah was. It was unjust unjust what happened to Jesus, just like it was unjust that happened to Uriah. He was humiliated as, as Uriah was humiliated by King David. Jesus Christ suffered for the sins of the world, for the sins of David, and for your sins too. So you need that first page of the book. You need to see the stain on your own heart, but you need to see the blood 
the red blood of Jesus Christ. And then it says, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Now what? What is whiter than snow? You see, when it falls, you wake up in the morning and it covers the landscape and it's so beautiful. But you see, the effect of the blood of Christ is better than snow because it's permanent. You see, the snow starts to melt. A dog comes along. The fireplace sends its ash out and the ash falls on the snow and the soot covers it. But the blood of Christ, the justification of the saints, is once for all good and permanent. This is, this, this is amazing. It is an act of God's free grace where he pardons our sins and counts us as righteous in his sight. This is amazing. This is grace. Grace. The entire New Testament packed up in this second half of verse 7. And you become whiter than snow because it's a divine righteousness, not your own. Richard Baxter, I put this in your bulletin in the reflection for you to take home. Richard Baxter said this. He says, Oh Lord, it must be great mercy or no mercy because little mercy is of no good for me. And so his mercy is great. Well, the psalm just builds to a crescendo at the end. What is the goal of repentance? And he gave us Psalm 51 to say it's even more than forgiveness. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for forgiveness. Anybody with me on that? Thank you for forgiveness. But repentance is more than forgiveness. For what he does is he pleads for renewal. He asks in these last nine verses to be made new. He wants to be changed by God. Do you want to be changed by God? You see, David... Before Nathan the prophet came after him, David was quite satisfied to live in his sin. He didn't want to be changed. But God wouldn't leave him there. And I love this about our God. He loves you just as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you just as you are. So David prays, and it's interesting, in verse 11... He says, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And he's not talking about losing his salvation He's here. What he's doing is he says, I just need you to confirm that I am one of your children. Confirm in my heart that I'm one of the elect because, God, I don't want to be like the apostates. I don't want to be like... Remember we studied the apostasy in, in 1 John 2.19, that those who went out from us were never of us. You see, there is... There are those people that kind of come into the church and they like to sing for a while and warm the pews and then they say, well, thank you, this is too real. This is too much. I'm out of here. And David says, don't let me be like that. Instead, he says, give me a clean heart and a right spirit. That's what I need. And he sees that he can't clean himself. My friend Jack Miller used to say this used to say, John, you and I are like two boys in a mud puddle, and we can't clean ourselves. And that's true, you know? Maybe some of you say, you know, I, yeah, I have a drink once in a while. Okay, I have a lot of drinks. I, 
okay, I drink pretty heavily, but I can take care of it. I look at pornography. Yeah, occasionally I see it, but I'm not, I'm not an addict. But, okay, I look at it regularly, but I can take care of it. Yeah, I scream at my wife, I scream at my husband, I scream at my kids. Okay, so I blow my top once in a while, but I can take care of it. What Psalm 51 teaches us is, no, you can't. You and I are like kids in a mud puddle. We can't clean ourselves. We need someone from the outside. We need the Holy Spirit to hose us down, and we need the Holy Spirit to hose us from the inside out. We need the Lord to change us. Look, David wants to be transformed. And if you're a complainer, are there people here? You know, the Bible says complaining is a sin. But if you're a complainer and, and a whiner, and, and you know the people around you, all they hear is you're whining and complaining, God wants to change you into a person of thankfulness and, and to use your own lips to speak words of encouragement and, and blessing to other people. If you say, you know, John, I'm hearing you, but I'm not hearing you. you know, I'm just pretty apathetic to this God thing. Apathy. He's not going to leave you there. He wants to move you and change you to be a worshiper. Somebody who's actually, your heart can't keep it in. You have to have God's praise on your lips because he's changing you. He's going to change you. It's not cheap grace. What he does is, what David does as he prays for joy in verse 12 and verse 8, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And he delivers you from being like my favorite Winnie the Pooh character. Who is that? Eeyore. You know, people tell me I'm a lot like Tigger. But, 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 but you know what? We all, we're all have a little bit of Eeyore in us. Who's Eeyore? He's the stick in the mud, the complainer. And what David says is, Lord, I don't want to be Eeyore anymore. Restore to me the joy, the joy of salvation. And let gladness and joy be in my life because then when there's joy, verse 15, let my mouth show forth thy praise and make me a person whose lips open my lips. Again, God has to do it. This is the work of God. You can't psychologically generate this yourself. You need God to put praise in your lips. And I tell you what, one of the things that I love as being the pastor of this church is meeting people who join our church. And they, they give their testimony. They meet with me and others, and they tell their story. And people come and they say, you know, I used to go to church when I was a kid. And they sang hymns, and we would sing hymns. But I come to North Shore Community Church. People have said this. I come to North Shore Community Church and I open my mouth to sing and nothing will come out because these people all around me are singing like they believe it. And all I can do is cry because I find that now I believe and something happened to me and I believe. And the singing isn't so great musically, but something happens. God has changed these people's lives, and I want to join in the chorus. This is what David's talking about. 
Open thou my lips that my mouth may show forth thy praise. And when you start to be someone who praises God, then, then he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and, sinner, and I will instruct sinners. And you know what? David says, I'm not just content. Listen to this. This is really cool. He says, I'm not content just with being forgiven. I'm not content with just asking for a clean heart for me. I'm not even content with praising God but now I want to help others from my own place of weakness. <laughs> I want to show others the way to forgiveness. Then I will teach transgressors. And you know other transgressors. Now, you don't go bang them over the head and say, you're a sinner. But you say, you know what? I'm a beggar, and I think you might be a beggar too, and I know where to get bread. Let's go to the bread of life together, Jesus Christ. You go through the, the wordless book with them and you say, join me in the prayer, wash me, Jesus, and I will be whiter than snow. He can't wait to get out there and do evangelism. And he comes back to a broken and a contrite heart because of the grace of God. He is safe. He is safe in the grace of God. You know what grace is? Grace is favor given where demerit is deserved. This, this is a good... You know, some people say grace is unmerited favor. Uh, it's more than unmerited favor. Grace is favor given, blessing given, when demerit, punishment, is deserved. And that's what we have. That's why we sing the song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved... a. Uh, a good person like me. Is there anyone here today that would use that phrase, that saved a good person like me? Yeah. Let's be honest. I know people that won't sing that line, that saved a wretch like me. They just won't sing. They can't choke the words out. But if that's you, then what you need to do is join David and join Nathan the prophet and say, show me, Lord, show me the sanity knowing my great need and my own sin, that I may see the fountain, the fountain of Jesus Christ that cleanses me from all unrighteousness, and he will, he will do it. So let's bow our heads together now. Let's pray together, and let's get joyful. Let's invite him, those of you who know him, just join me in the quietness of your own heart. Lord Jesus, how I praise you for the fountain of your blood. I've seen that my greatest need is to know my great need for you, and Lord, you're bringing me to sanity that I need a Savior. And you've shown me the greatest sanity of all, that you are the Savior of the world. The Lamb, looking as if he were slain, is the one, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away my sin. Forgive me for my lust, my adultery, my greed, my boasting, my complaining. Lord, I used to think my criticizing was a spiritual gift. And now I see that my critical heart is a 
comes sometimes from a condemning heart where I become the judge. Oh, forgive me. I am not thankful as I should be. I would steal and covet. Oh, Lord. How I thank you for the blood of Christ. Wash me with hyssop. Sprinkle me with the blood of Christ. Wash me in the water of your grace. And I will be whiter than snow. And then send me out of here, Lord, so full of joy, so thankful for what you've done. And take and make that newness of life in me that I may be a Christian and live like a Christian should live with all brokenness and humility and with all joy and new righteousness. Because you're changing me. And I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.